Matthew 7, 21 through 29. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lori. So we have been in a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon, Jesus' most famous and well-known teaching for about 15 or 16 weeks. And in it, we find the heart of Jesus' teaching. He gives us his vision for, he gives us an invitation into a life of flourishing, life as it's meant to be lived, a life of blessing. And he also shows us this is what it looks like to be the kind of person who brings flourishing into the lives of other people. And so this morning, we're closing this out, and we've just heard Jesus' concluding and final words in his sermon. And as I was thinking about it this week, although this part of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew is called a sermon, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount, as we came to the end of it, I wondered, is that the best word to describe this body of teaching? When we think of sermon, we think of this. I'm giving a sermon right now, and we listen to the sermon. Afterward, we connect, we spend time together, we eat some snacks, we go home, and perhaps God uses a piece of, of the sermon to impact us, um, to do something in our lives and in our hearts. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind here. Instead of a sermon, consider this alternate title. Maybe we could call it the meeting on the mount, meeting, where Jesus is saying, I'm calling a meeting to share my kingdom agenda. This is what I've come to bring into the world. This is what I've come to do to your life. Now, when you hear the word meetings, that's not the most exciting word in the world to many of you. We've been, probably a lot of you have been in all kinds of meetings. When I, when I talk to my kids about what I'm doing, especially if I'm going out in the evening for a meeting or a counseling appointment, I always, they always say, are you going to a meeting? Do you have another meeting? Do you have a meeting, meeting, meeting? They just think, I don't know what their picture of what my life is like, but it's just sitting at a table and having a meeting. And so that doesn't sound very exciting to them. And we've all been a part of meetings for the most part. It can either be a workplace filled with meetings where, where we volunteer at church, and we know the difference between a good meeting 
and a bad meeting. One type of meeting that is a bad meeting would be the kind of meeting where everybody gets together and says, this has got to change. Something's got to be different. And everyone's like, yes, something needs to change around here. We need to do things different. And then everybody leaves, does their, does their job, and then follow-up meeting one week, late, one week later, and everybody comes, same group of people, and they say, all right, what's happened? And everyone looks at each other, well, nothing's changed. Nothing's different. Nothing's happened. And you, they look back and think, what, what went wrong here? And they realize meeting number one, there weren't any action items. Nobody ever talked about, well, what are we going to do about this? And who's going to do what? Jesus' meeting on the mount was very effective. We read the result at the end, and even into chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were, in verse 29, astonished at his teaching. And if you, if you can peek, if you have your Bible, verse 1 of chapter 8 says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And it goes on from there. So this wasn't just a sermon to listen to, to go home, to reflect, to consider, and go about your business. It was a call to action. It was a call to discipleship. Jesus' conclusion, as we just heard read by Lori, it ended with some action items. And what we learn is that the Sermon on the Mount can only bring flourishing to us and through us if we're putting it into practice in our life. The people from all over the spiritual spectrum, even those who are skeptical or critical of Christianity, are drawn to this piece of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. They would say, this, there's something here. There's something different here. If we all live like this, the world would be such a better and different place. When I talk with, uh, with Christians, my Christian friends, interacting with the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of conversations I have are like this. I, I resonate with what Jesus is saying. I agree with it in my, in my head. I know it's the right way, but man, it's so hard to do it. It is so hard to put this into practice. So thankfully, at the end of his sermon, Jesus doesn't just say, okay, now just go do it. He helps us see what's most important for putting the Sermon on the Mount into practice in our lives. And I'm just going to go over these in three points. One, he helps us see what it means to start right, starting right. Secondly, uh, going small and secret. And thirdly, building slow and deep. So first, starting right. Often, when we're called and asked to do something very hard, often the hardest part is just knowing where to start. Um, a lot of you kids are starting school again. Yay, school! I didn't get, any, I didn't get anything from that. And when school starts, often there's, like what we're doing here, an open house or a back-to-school night. Parents come and learn everything that their kids are doing. So um, our kids had their open house last week. My oldest son is in seventh grade, so it's kind of a game changer. All the subjects are a lot harder. And I went to one of his uh, classes, and I'm going to share a little visual. That was the class that I went to, pre-algebra. And I was filled with fear because math is my weakest subject. 
I don't know, kids, if you're good at math, I don't know what your weakest subject is, but pre-algebra, I'm not even going to be able to help him with his homework anymore in this. So if you can think about taking this pre-algebra textbook, and if you were to show up for your open house, maybe you're in first grade out there, maybe you're in second grade, or parents, you can think of this, and the second grade or first grade teacher said, here is our textbook for this class, pre-algebra. I'm going to challenge these kids this year. This is serious business. A lot of you might be you know, parents, I have a question. What about addition? My kid is still working on addition and subtraction. Shouldn't we start there? In order to do something difficult like pre-algebra or calculus, you need to start in the right place. You need to start with addition. You need to start with subtraction. In verse 21, Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now we hear that, and that's maybe one of the most sobering or scary things that Jesus ever said. And while I do think Jesus meant this to be a very sober warning for us, I don't think he meant for us to take that and get lost in introspection and keep asking ourselves, could it be me? Could it be me? How am I doing? Am I obeying enough? Could it be me? I think he means it to be used in a different way. And Jesus is showing us the kind of disconnect that, if it's a part of our lives, will keep us from putting the Sermon on the Mount, his word, into practice. And in some sense, there's really no use in trying to do anything Jesus tells us to do until we address this disconnect first. He's showing us a starting point. Let me explain. Saying Lord, Lord to Jesus would be, especially at this point in Jesus' ministry, here at the very beginning, a very advanced theological statement. It's essentially a confession of the lordship of Jesus, his divinity that he's God, he's on par with the Father, the one and only God. In the Old Testament, this double, it's called the double vocative, Lord, Lord, that's used 18 times in the Old Testament. Each time it appears, it's a heightened expression of the sovereignty of God, of his sole authority and his only divinity. He is Adonai Yahweh, Lord, Lord. And so the disconnect here is a disconnect between theology and life, between profession and action. To confess and call Jesus Lord, Lord would mean he is the authority, he is the Lord, not over just what, what I think but how I live, the practical daily life that I have. So what does that mean? I think it means this, that putting the Sermon on the Mount or any portion of the Bible into practice in our lives begins with the question of lordship, the starting point, especially when Jesus asks us to do something that's so hard for us. If we disagree with Jesus, the starting point is to stop and ask, who is Jesus? The most basic confession, the starting point of the entire New Testament is really just three words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So we take Jesus' statement and we look at the polar opposite. It would be this. Those who enter into the kingdom of heaven are those who say to me, Lord, Lord, and do the will of my Father in heaven. It's those whose practice connects with their profession. And if there is a disconnect in our lives, if we're having a hard time, if we're not seeing that connection happen, then we need to return back to the starting point. 
So let me share some examples. As a pastor, I have regular conversations with people about putting Scripture into practice. Some who are not Christians want to ask about the hot-button topics immediately. Well, what does the Bible teach about sexual ethics or orientation? What What does the Bible say about the fact that, well, I'm not praying, I'm not giving. Does that mean I'm going to hell? And they want to get right to those hard, hot-button topics, and I'm like, wow, (laughs) those are difficult questions. Or, for my Christian friends, a lot of my conversations have to do with the question that we struggle with, why am I having such a hard time putting my faith into practice, actually doing it? I agree with what Jesus says, I just can't do it. In all these cases, in both those cases, it's the same starting point. Begin with Jesus. Who is Jesus? Is he Lord? Is he the authority in my life? Or is something else the authority in my life? And so we go from the lordship or the authority of Jesus first into his specific teachings, into his moral vision for our lives, into the ethics, he says, or the way of human flourishing. And so for my Christian friends, the starting point for putting Jesus' vision for flourishing into practice in our lives is to ask ourselves, where is the disconnect? Where is the disconnect happening in my life? And who's the Lord and authority in my life in this area? It's two things the Sermon on the Mount shows us about the Lordship of Jesus, about His authority if we're struggling with a disconnect. We have to be convinced of these two things. I think even before we ever put into practice anything that Jesus says, one, Jesus is Lord, so that means he is the authority. He calls me to wholehearted and total obedience to him, the submission of my will to his. And so Jesus is not a religious teacher. He's not a wise sage. He's not a prophet among others. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I am the authority over your life. But secondly, and in parallel, we need to see that Jesus is the Lord. He is the authority on human wholeness and freedom. We read from uh, the book of James earlier in the service. He's the brother of Jesus, leader of the early church. And he's really, in, in chapter 1 of James, he's really commenting on this passage from the Sermon on the Mount. And he uses a mirror to explain this. He says, when we look at what Jesus is calling us to do, we need to think about it like we're looking into a mirror. And so, mirrors. I'm sure this is true of of your life as well as in my life. But what I've noticed is that there are some mirrors that bring out the best in me that I feel like, that's a good mirror because I look good in that mirror. And there are other mirrors that I don't want to look at myself in. Like our mirror in the bathroom, I'm like, why am I so old and going gray? I don't like this mirror, and I just never like looking at myself in that mirror. But there's a mirror back here in the pastor's office, in the bathroom, and I call it a pastor's mirror. Because every time I look in that mirror, I'm like, yeah, I look all right. I look all right. So I feel confident. I feel better about myself. I love that mirror back there. James says, That's how we're to look at the law. That's how we're to look at what God calls us to do. That it's a mirror that does both. It's a mirror that shows us the worst about ourselves. Shows us all our flaws, all of our failures. But at the same time, it's a mirror that shows us who we are meant to be. 
the people that Jesus can make us and is making us as we follow him. That's what the law is. It's God's vision for the, the, the flourishing life, a life of wholeness, a life where we are truly free. So Jesus is the Lord who loves us. He wants to set us free to flourish. His word is a law of wholeness and liberty. That's the starting point. We need to start in those places of the disconnect and drive ourselves back to that starting point. Jesus is Lord. Secondly, the second lesson for putting what Jesus says into practice is going small and secret. Going small and secret versus big and public. In verses 22 and 23, we see that Jesus says, on that day, he's talking about the day of judgment. He's saying, I'm going to be the judge on that day. Many people will be surprised because they expect that Jesus will want to see their spiritual highlight reel. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? Incredible things. And Jesus says to them, depart from me, you workers of evil and lawlessness. And so the people who live for the big and the public and didn't put into practice Jesus' words in the small and secret places in their lives will be very surprised at what he has to say to them. One of the favorite things that we do in our family, I have four boys, is to watch baseball highlights. They always want to watch the highlights, and I explain to them, when I grew up, I had to look at the paper and just read about this. But now we could just go on the phone, go, what are the highlights? We're Cubs fans, sorry Dodgers fans, but we want to see the highlights. And when you click on the highlights, what do you want to see? Home runs. You want to see incredible catches and plays in the field. You want to see strikeouts by pitchers at key moments. What you don't see when you click highlights are, here's a highlight of before the game when they were practicing off the tee. Here's a highlight of somebody running the bases before the game. Here's a highlight of people taking fly balls and ground balls in practice. We tend to, in our lives, maybe now than ever, judge ourselves and others by the highlights. We share our accomplishments, our successes, our achievements on social media. We want to go big in public with those. Our best vacations, our best moments with the kids, the best pictures that we have. And we want to share that with the world. And what we hope to get, I'm going to share a picture for the kids, is a lot of these. A lot of likes. The more public it is, we say, oh, people like it. I'm affirmed, and this is good. But Jesus says here, he isn't interested in the sensational things we've done and the spiritual highlight reel of our lives. Instead, the things he will be interested in are the things that to most people are small. To most people are hidden and secret. In chapter 6, when Jesus was contrasting rewarding spirituality versus empty spirituality, he kept repeating the same phrase over and over, just, a few chap or just one chapter earlier. He said three times, my father who sees in secret will reward you. Chapter 6, verse 4, and verse 6, verse 8, three times he says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, God is looking for the small things, the secret things in our lives. And so, as we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, that means in our moments when we have anger 
inside. Moments where we have to consider what it means to tell the truth. Loving someone who's hard to love, an enemy. Considering what we need to give away, things we can give up and fasting. In our daily anxieties, learning to say sorry often. We get the log out of our own eye. Learning what it means to pray with persistence. These things are small in the sense that they are not going to make the headlines and the highlights. And they are secret. Very few people will know about our slow steps of obedience in these areas of our lives. But Jesus says, this is what's going to be on the highlight reel for me of your life. Investing the best of our energy, our focus, and our time then should go to what to others is small and secret. So that's point two. Starting right, secondly, going small and going secret. Thirdly, building slow and deep. To close Jesus' sermon, he tells a story. He tells this parable of two houses. And in this final story, he's illustrating a theme that has run throughout the sermon from start to finish, and it's the difference between external appearance and internal reality. He says, you could see two houses out there. They both seem sturdy and well-built. But what you can't see is that these two houses have very different foundations. The foundation is only revealed in a great storm. One stands, and he says the other collapses in a great fall, in a great crash. Earlier this year, 2017, in February, in Southern California, I know it's a distant memory now, but we had rain. There was a lot of rain. A huge storm came in in February, and what happened on a road in L.A. was this huge sinkhole opened up. A couple pictures of that. There's a Honda Odyssey about to collapse into a sinkhole. That's very scary. Hopefully that doesn't give anyone nightmares. And then the next one from the overhead view, there are the cars that collapsed into that sinkhole. On the surface, this is just one of many roads in Los Angeles. But when the storms came, we saw that there was actually very little foundation there in that piece of the road. Jesus says the foundation in our lives is the difference between hearing only and hearing and doing. One of the most important rules of construction, right, is before you build, establish a strong foundation. A wise builder takes the time to do this right, to lay a good foundation. But someone who builds their house on an unstable foundation, Jesus says, is foolish. They're in a rush. They're in a hurry. They're trying to do things the quick and the easy way. They're building fast and shallow. The sociologists have come up with a new term to describe something happening in our culture. You may have heard it before. I never heard it until this week. It's called time famine. Have you heard of time famine? It means this, a persistent feeling that we have too much to do and not enough time to do it. And the irony is that the more we fill our lives with time-saving devices and time-saving strategies, the more rushed we feel. Living in an age of time famine means it's even more difficult for us to build slow and to build deep in our lives, to learn the patient wisdom required not only to hear what Jesus is saying and to make sense of it, but to put it into practice in our lives. This week, I just began reading a book. I'm super excited about it. It's called The Patient 
ferment of the early church. Who wants to read it with me? It's really good. It's, it's about one of the most mysterious facts of history, and that is, how did the early church grow? This was a marginalized community. This was a persecuted community. They were weird. They were different. They were counterculture. Cultural. Why did anybody want to join this group? And how, after three or four hundred years, did they expand so rapidly and make such an impact? So the answer in this book to that question is that they emphasized one virtue over and over again in the early church. And that virtue was patience. The first Christian treatise on a character trait or a virtue was not on faith or hope or love, but on patience. And as the author does a quick survey of the first 300 years of writing from the early church on patience, we read about what Justin said in Clement, in Origen, in Tertullian, in Cyprian. These are the giants of the early church. Two things they all said. They all agreed that patience was key to our maturity and to our mission as Christians. And all of them based this and rooted this in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He said, this is so hard. This is so countercultural. This is not natural for us to live like this. It's going to take a long time for it to sink deep. We're going to have to take it slow. But to learn to flourish and be a person who brings flourishing to others, we have to realize it doesn't happen fast. It doesn't happen easy, but it's a slow and a patient work of letting those words sink into the foundation of our lives. Starting right going slow in secret, building slow and deep, one more final bonus, and that's staying astonished. It's a final but important closing thought that I want to share. When we're looking at a passage like this one and hearing a message like this, where the focus is on how genuine faith produces fruit, on how a true relationship with Jesus will result into putting into practice what he says, there's a danger of just hearing, go do it. One of those meetings where everybody says, let's go do it. But as, as we review the final phrase at the end of this chapter, we see that the crowds were just astonished at his authority, at his teaching. But as, as we look at the entire gospel of Matthew, as we look at the story of Jesus, his teaching is astonishing. But what's even more astonishing, even more astonishing than his authority is his humility. Only once in the Gospel of Matthew did Jesus play the authority card himself. He could have any time said, okay, I am God. I am the Lord. So you need to do what I have to say or else. He didn't use that approach. But the one time that he did, where he directly claimed authority, was in his very last statement in the gospel. After he died and rose again, he said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Why is that? Well, I think Jesus wanted us to see that his astonishing authority comes from a place of an even greater astonishing humility. That the Lord is the one who came to be one of us. He is the Lord who died for us. He is the Lord who rose again. And that though he completely built his life fully and in every way on the foundation of the word and of obeying the word, instead of having a house that withstood the storm, 
He entered into the storm of judgment for us. And it was a great crash as he bore the great storm of God's judgment in our place. So as we learn to start in the right place, as we learn to go slow, as we learn to build a deep and strong foundation in our lives, at the heart of it, we need to stay astonished at the humility of Jesus, the one who didn't use his authority against us, but came to serve and to set us free. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible sermon. This incredible sermon that we spend 15, 16 weeks wrestling with, listening to. We know it would be a tragedy if we spent this much time hearing what you have to say to us and coming away not changed at all. We also know that that is a slow and hard and patient work. And so I pray for all of us. Would you sink in deeply into our hearts the beauty and the wisdom of the life you have come to set us free to live? And where we stumble, where we struggle, and where we fall, Lord, thank you that you are there to pick us up. You are there with forgiving love. You are there with the humility of a servant, even though you are the Lord of all, to set us back on the path so that we might flourish. Keep us astonished, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.